It's at the time of the Reformation. And then we'll spend probably most of the time, the second point being the meaning and the importance of Solus Christus itself. And then a, a few words at the end on what about today? What are we to think of the Reformation and the Solas today? So, um, talking about the history and the background a little bit, um, it's been said, as important as the other solas are, this one, Christ alone, is, could be said, central to all of them, meaning, in last week John preached on Scripture alone, yes, Scripture alone is our authority for what is true, we don't look anywhere else, but to find out the truth about what? Well, that Christ is the answer to our sin problem. That's the main point. What do we do with our sin problem? And so the first one said, well, how do you find out about that? And we say scripture alone. Christ is the answer to our sin problem. And this, Alex next week will preach on Faith alone, after we talk about Christ alone today, faith alone, yes, but faith in what or in whom? Christ, of course. And then the week after that, John will pick back up with sola gratia, grace alone. But what is that grace? It's the person and work of Christ. And the fifth one, the last one is to God alone be the glory for what? The sending of Christ to us with no glory attributed to us and all to him. So, of course, um, having said that, it is very helpful to consider all the solas because they really do hang together and form a unified whole. But as mentioned, the big issue, the big underlying problem, the big issue underlying all of them is... How can sinful people ever be justified? How can they ever be reconciled or put right again with our holy creator, God? That's the big problem. They all address that main problem, but they answer different questions in doing that. And as last week, as regarding sola scriptura, that's the question that sola scriptura answers is, where do we get the authority to say what the answer is to that big question of being put right with God? The Roman church said, um, yes, the Bible speaks to that, but so do the traditions and creeds that the church added over the years. And the reformers said, no, it's scripture alone that tells us the answer. Well, next, today's Sola asks the question, well, who is it that works righteousness or goodness for us in our fallen condition? And the Roman church said, yes, of course, Christ, but so do Mary and all the saints. And they said that there's something called the treasury of merit which is, I think of as it's described, I think of it like a giant uh, barn solo 
which contains all the extra good works of Mary and the saints, good works that they didn't need because they were so good and holy, the church said. And those extra works in the treasury of merit is something that we common sinners can tap into by way of sacraments or indulgences, both for ourselves and family and friends who died and didn't go to hell but are stuck in purgatory. But the reformers said, no, the person and work of Christ alone is sufficient to save any sinner all the way to the uttermost without any help at all from Mary or the saints. Then next week, Pastor Alex, who's going to preach on sola fide, faith alone, that answers the very important question of, okay, if it's by Christ alone, how do I lay hold of that? <clears throat> What's the instrument I use to procure it, to get it, to take hold of it, to make it mine? And the Roman church uh, tried to help with seven sacraments instead of the two that the Bible mentions. <clears throat> They're not, there's no mentions of rosaries or formula prayers to repeat it again and again. No, a, a sinner lays hold of Christ by faith. Alex will talk about next week. And some wanted to say that faith is work. It, you have to work if you express faith. But if you want to call it work, it's the only, to put it this way, the only non-work work that there is. And the scriptures say even that faith is a gift from God. And so this sola fide says you believe without lifting a finger. It is an empty, open hand which receives something. It doesn't perform a work and do something. And then sola gratia answers the question of how a sinner would ever earn or deserve such a thing. And the, the Roman church used something called prevenient grace. Don't know if you've heard that term. But as the name implies, it prepares people beforehand to be saved. So this is the Roman church saying, okay, no, you can't save yourself, but you can prepare yourself for it beforehand. One writer said it's like a prevenient grace is like a porch that you go up onto before being invited into the house of salvation. But of course, that is still earning your way in in a way. It's something you can do to help out. And again, the reformer said, no, it's by sheer grace alone that a sinner is saved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. So there's nothing earned, preveniently or after, before or after. There's, in other words, there's nothing you can do to put God in a debt relationship to you. Well, that's sola gratia. The fifth one, the fifth sola, then, after all of these other four, the question remains, well, who gets the glory for all of this? Not church creeds and traditions, but the Bible, sola scriptura. Not Mary and the saints, but Christ alone. Not what you do, only what you believe, sola fide. Not some inherent pre-existing spark of good in you that made you go up on the porch but grace alone. And so the last word has to be 
that all of salvation is to the glory of God alone. That was the cry of the Reformation and still today. So sadly, by the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, the Roman church had fallen into a number of errors and discrepancies and heresies. And as a faithful priest, Martin Luther wrote up those 95 theses or propositions to address those problems. And today, we think today's, we would say, is Halloween. October 31st is Halloween, but that word, hollow is holy and een is evening. So the word refers to the holy evening before tomorrow, which is All Saints Day, November 1st. And the Wittenberg Cathedral, at the time of this, had just received a huge collection of relics. <clears throat> relics are objects that are maybe a staff or a piece of wood from a cross or something, but they had just received a big <clears throat> treasure trove of relics, objects that are tied to saints and popes and miracles that people paid to see and to handle as a way to tap into grace. Maybe they didn't charge as such, but they certainly received your offering to do that. Well, Luther had had enough, and that prompted him to ask 95 questions about this, this whole system that had developed, and he nailed them to the cathedral door on the evening before All Saints Day. And that, of course, started a firestorm in the church, which culminated with Luther's heresy trial at the, got to be careful how you pronounce this, at the Diet of Worms. That sounds terrible. Uh, January 28, 1521, no, the Diet of Worms was not the latest protein diet. A diet, it's actually pronounced diet. That's an assembly. And it was in the city of W-O-R-M-S, but that's pronounced Vorms. So the Diet of Vorms is, was where his heresy trial was. And you know the story. They laid out all his books on the table and said, you need to recant, reject your position, which had been, which became known as, in hindsight, the five solas, the things that we're talking about. And he was told, you must reject this. And <clears throat> paraphrasing, he said, no, I won't. I cannot violate the Bible or my conscience. Here I stand on the scriptures alone. God help me. Amen. And because of that, the Protestant Reformation began. That's the first main point, that's the history, that's where we come from <clears throat> and how the, all the solas figure in. Well, now the second main point is let's spend some time now talking about, well, what is so important about solus Christus? I chose Acts 4.12 as my main proof text. I should have read it earlier, um, but here it is. This is Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There it is. It's on the screen. That's the main statement of solus Christus. 
there's any number of um, sola type statements. We, one of them was the assurance of forgiveness today. Um, there's many verses that say the same thing in various ways in the Old and the New Testament. But in regard to explaining this a little more, I decided to use, it's, it's not going to be on the screen, but um, I decided to use 2 Corinthians uh, 5 to, to look more deeply at Solus Christus. So you can either listen or look it up if you have your Bible in front of you, but I want to read and spend this middle section of the sermon on 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. So 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ <coughs> reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We make his appeal, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul is saying that we are ministers of reconciliation, meaning that was on the screen. Thank you. Um, Paul has just said that uh, we are ministers of reconciliation, meaning we need to share this good news of salvation in Christ. And someone, people have, uh, scholars over the years have counted up in Paul's writings <clears throat> and there's no question, Paul's favorite phrase is some form of in Christ, by Christ, or through Christ. So these verses in, in 2 Corinthians 5 tell us what Christ set out to achieve that we are integrated into. Well, he came to accomplish and to establish right standing for sinners before God, fixing that main problem we talked about earlier. Our relationship to God was broken at the fall of man in Genesis 3, and Christ came to restore that relationship to one of loving fellowship. We listen to the language here in 2 Corinthians 5, and this language of reconciliation and restoring something broken, something that's broken or stolen, is courtroom language, language of the, a court trial. And in this passage, when he says that that's because we're sinful and unclean, now you're using temple language, language from the temple of things that are unclean, meaning he came as the great high priest and he tore the temple veil top to bottom to gain access for us sinners. And in other places, not as much here, but in other places, he talks about slaves being bought back with a redemption price paid. So in those verses and passages, he's using marketplace language. People living then would have understood this. Courtroom language 
temple language and marketplace language. They would have immediately picked that up and understood it, and maybe, maybe it'd be a little easier for us today to simply say the Bible uses reconciliation language. Whether it's some problem that's come up in a court, a legal problem, or a temple with a moral problem, or the marketplace with a social problem of selling, wherever it happens, whatever it is, it means a problem has arisen and it needs to be reconciled. It needs to be fixed. So to go further into what Christ alone did for us, let's talk about these words, these problems, and we want to zero in on alienation and the problem that that is, and then what's the means of reconciling that alienation. So alienation first, where does this alienation occur? Well, certainly from man, man from God. Man is alienated from God, but also it's the other direction too. God is alienated from man, both directions. And as a result, men from other men um, among us. But mainly the alienation occurs that we are alienated from God. So then we got to ask the question, why are we alienated from God and others? Well, it's because we are so self-absorbed, so full of pride. Luther said man is, this is an interesting phrase, man is curved in on himself. Curved in on himself. Meaning everything we say, everything we do, everything we want, all of our motives is, is bent inward towards us. We make life about us, not towards God and not towards others, and we're not even neutral in this. We are curved in and bent towards us. That's the cause of our alienation. It's what Paul's talking about here in 2 Corinthians 5 and, and other places. We selfishly make life all about us, even though it's God who gives us this life. Another place it says, uh, in God is in whom we live and move and have our being, but we turn all of that in on ourselves. If you think about it, go all the way to Judgment Day. Um, when you think about Judgment Day, that assumes alienation, doesn't it? God is going to ask you and me on Judgment Day, why did you live your life that way, alienated, apart from me, focused only on yourself? But because of Christ alone, God doesn't leave us in that sinful condition. Verse 19 is amazing. It says, in the face of this alienation, it says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And so notice, it was God doing the reconciling first. Some have referred to this as the divine initiative. God made a preemptive strike of grace, we could say. You've heard of this, right? When one nuclear armed country fires a missile first, 
that's called a preemptive strike. Well, here in redemption, redemption, God makes a preemptive strike of grace in the life of the sinner by sending Christ while the sinner is still in his sinful state. So redemption is not dependent on man. This is such good news. Christ alone is God's answer to our sin problem. Christ alone is uniquely suited for our alienation problem. And so that's the second sub-point we're talking about here. That's what the problem of alienation, and now we want to talk about the means of reconciling someone who is in that. How do we fix our alienation problem? And it's in verse 21, one of my favorite verses, many of you too, I think. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's it. That in, in theological terms, the word is imputation. Imputation was a bookkeeping term, which means to charge something to an account. What does that mean? Well, when you pay your credit card bill, the money that you send in is imputed to your credit card account. It means an outside payment has been brought in and the debt is removed from the credit card. Another similar word for imputing is reckoning. Maybe you've heard that word. Your credit card bill is now reckoned as cleared and paid off. It is reconciled to zero because the debt is removed. And so our verse in verse 21, you will notice that a double imputation or charging occurs. Firstly, it says, he who knew no sin is made sin for us. That is, your sin debt is charged to Jesus's page in the accounting book, and he is now fully liable for it. It's a legal forensic transaction. And then the second of the two imputations is the second half of the verse that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, that means his perfect sinless record is now transferred to your page. And that's also real and legal. And all of that benefit now accrues to you. So not only has your debt been wiped out and reduced to zero, now trillions of spiritual dollars are deposited for free into your account all undeserved by you, none of it earned by you, all done by God through sheer grace by the work of Christ alone. We said earlier that Christ is uniquely qualified for this, and that's why we say Christ alone. That's a unique word. He's qualified to do this because it says he who knew no sin. And think about that. That means he had no original sin, meaning uh, no Adamic sin imparted to him by our 
human father, Adam, and he had no actual sins that he might have committed himself. So Jesus had done nothing wrong and everything right, yet God reckoned him a sinner. Jesus experienced the full force of that on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was feeling the full brunt of this reckoning. And if you think about this, because our sin, all of our sin was put on him on the cross, Jesus became the greatest sinner the world had ever seen. And so God, being holy, could not abide his presence and sin, and so he turned away from him, and he had to judge him as wicked. You might know or remember that um, there are two goats that are sacrificed in one of the Old Testament ceremonies of atonement. Uh, one was killed outright to pay for the crime, the penalty, and the second one was called the scapegoat. And the priest put his hand on his head and he was sent out into the wilderness as far as could be imagined. And the point was that that was never to be taken up again for judgment. It's gone. Such is the uniquely qualified Lamb of God, Christ alone. So now we've got to ask, well, why did he die? because of justice. Substitution and satisfaction are being done to satisfy God's justice. A substitute lamb is provided for you and for me to satisfy divine justice, justice to the full. Not counting our trespasses against us, but counting them against Christ by substitution. Hesitate to mention this, but some detractors have said that the cross amounts to cosmic child abuse. But the big part that they're missing is that Jesus said he laid down his life willingly. That no one took it from him. He was not forced. He was not coerced or abused into doing this. Christ alone did this, not by the mediation of priests, who could never sit down, he did it in order to sit down. Christ alone accomplished redemption for us. And when he had, the book of Hebrews tells us four different times, he sat down, signifying once and for all, it is finished, which is what he said on the cross. So redemption and reconciliation have been achieved on the cross. And it's a certain truth. It's not a potential atonement. It's a definite atonement for some actual people. Jesus had some actual names on his mind when he died. The elect children of God. So that's the second biggest part of the message, and that is what is Christ alone. So now, thirdly, uh, some final thoughts as we close. What about today? Well, as Dave mentioned, the Reformation was 504 years ago, and a lot has happened since then. A man named, a scholar, writer named Charles Taylor, I had not heard of him, but he made an observation in using the Enlightenment 
of the 18th century. Uh, he speaks of three time frames in regard to the Enlightenment. He talks about before the Enlightenment. I'll, I'll go over these again because the words are a little tricky. Before the Enlightenment, it's the first time period, and he says before the Enlightenment, it was impossible not to believe in God and in Christ and in the Bible. <clears throat> he said it was impossible not to believe with a Christian and biblical worldview, meaning almost everybody believed before the Enlightenment. But with the coming of the Enlightenment, the second time frame, now with the so-called Enlightenment, we're smarter than before, it was now possible not to believe. In other words, some started not believing in a Christian world and life view. And then thirdly, after the Enlightenment, he says it is now impossible to believe and have a Christian and biblical worldview, meaning most people don't believe anymore. So it used to be impossible not to believe, then it became possible not to believe. Now it's impossible to believe. Hope you follow that. I, I think it's accurate. Um, and I, I remember, maybe some of you do too, I remember being shaken uh, as a young Christian at the time, being shaken a number of years ago to learn that America was now a post Christian nation. I thought, no, it's not. We're a Christian nation. But it was true. We had moved to being an after-Christian nation. Well, it's chilling to think that within the last, what, 15 to 20 years, we have moved even further away such that we can say we now live in an anti-Christian nation. There's lots of evidence for this. Uh, just one example, you probably heard of the Pew Research Organization, their famous pollsters, um, as far as I know, fairly well respected. And I guess all polls are <clears throat> suspect, depending on what you want to prove. But in any event, they found recently that, and you ready for this, 70% of professing Christians said it's possible for other religious systems to lead to salvation. 70% of Christians think that other religions also are a means of salvation. So you see what we're saying here, if that poll is accurate, 70% of Christians today don't believe in solus Christus. But it went on, um, just as alarming, they found that only 39% of evangelical Christians believe the Bible is the literal word of God. Only 39%. And one more, it gets worse. 18%, the percentage is smaller, but 18% of Christians, now how do you define it? I'm not sure what the poll, <clears throat> how they got people to say they were Bible, I mean, um, evangelical Christians, but 18% said that the Bible is written only by men and it's not the word of God at all. So, sad to say, the solas are losing ground and more and more are the minority report 
today. All this is to say we are in need of a second reformation today. And there's two problems that are causing that. One of them, the same as 500 years ago, yes, there are changes in the Roman church, but the Roman church is still with us like in the time of the Reformation, and there's been no recanting of error. I'm a former Catholic. Um, I, I do know a number of Catholics who are believers who reject a number of those doctrines, but they still stay. But anyway... You, you can research this and find out lots about whether indulgences are working today or, or for sale or just for offering. But the same, officially, the same theological system is still in place uh, even after 500 years. And, and let's not um, go out looking for a fight over this, but defend the solas uh, when you can. Well, that's the... One reason the problems are still here today is that system is still in place in one form or another. And the second reason we have those people taking polls with answers like that is a new development today is our society today is largely influenced by these two words, inclusivism and pluralism. Inclusivism says everyone and everything is to now be included with no questions asked. Pluralism, similar, says there are many genders. There are many truths. There are many gods. There are many ways, and all of them are okay. That's the big thing today. So truth is relative today more than ever, it would seem. You have your truth. I have mine. Truth is what you make it. The greatest sin today in our culture is to make an absolute statement, to say there are no absolutes. You, you can't be making these absolute Bible statements. There just aren't any absolute statements, which, ironically enough, is itself an absolute statement that they're making. And it isn't just America. In Japan, they have a saying, all roads lead to the top of Mount Fuji meaning it doesn't matter what religion or path you follow because they all lead to God. But our response to that is, no, we're talking about an entirely different mountain. So human beings are still curved inward, as Luther said. We have, as a society, uh, greatly minimized, if not fully denied, God's truth. The world today says the claim of Christ alone is intolerant, it's exclusive, it's unfair, it's unloving, it's narrow-minded. And even Christians have been influenced some by this thinking in that, to give an example, um, they might not deny God's truth, but, and I have to admit I've done this, um, have sometimes minimized their sin. We no longer need what the Puritan writer John Owen called the mortification of sin, the putting to death of sin. Now we have merely the management of sin, not mortification, just management. We would say, yes, sin's wrong, but it's not that bad. 
Well, you can see that losing sight of solus Christus amounts to what Luther described as having only little painted sins. What a phrase. But if you minimize sin such that yours are only little painted sins sitting up on the mantelpiece over the fireplace, you only need a little painted Savior to cover them, not the grand and magnificent Christ alone of the Bible. Well, one final illustration. Um, Scottish pastor Derek Thomas uh, told of a parishioner who... I guess felt sorry for the way he dressed, but paid for him to have a hand-tailored, handmade suit. He never had that before. And he said it took three months to complete the suit, multiple fittings and checking. And he said it was so beautiful that he hardly wore it. But when he brought it home and put it on to show his wife, she said, come here, let me see that. Let me feel that fabric. And he said, that's like the robe of righteousness given to us by Christ alone. You realize this? We have an imputed suit. God sees us in it, and he says, come here. Come close to me. I recognize that suit. Let me embrace you. Let me kiss you. You look just like my son. Isaiah 61.10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has clothed me with garments of splendor and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So on this Reformation Sunday 2021, let's do just that. Let us delight greatly in solus Christus, Christ alone, for our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do delight in your gracious gift of Christ alone. And by your grace, we will not be like those who say, why is this so narrow and exclusive? But we will instead with glad hearts say, why did you make even one way? We don't deserve that, but you did it anyway. And so this day, Father, we are sorry for how we have not cherished this truth more and not shared it as ministers of reconciliation with our families and neighbors. So please help us to bend outward instead of inward. Thank you for the mercy of the gospel. Thank you for our beautiful robes of righteousness. In Christ's name alone, we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand, and what else would we sing today but in Christ alone? Let's stand.